Good afternoon. This afternoon we'll venture into the third of the four immeasurables, the one that is easily overlooked, but the one that perhaps most readily lends itself to practice while we're out about in the world and just engaging with what's happening. This, of course, is empathetic joy, or it's simply called gawa in Tibetan, or mudita in Sanskrit, which means, simply means gladness, gladness, joy, delight. But it's not just any kind of gladness, of course, it is a type of empathetic joy. And most specifically, and I'll, and I'll draw initially from the Theravada, and then maybe tomorrow we'll bring in a bit of the Mahayana perspective on this, slightly different, very complementary. But from the Theravada perspective, tracing back to the Pali Canon, this, unlike loving-kindness and compassion, is an emotion. Loving-kindness and compassion, as I'm sure you now know, are aspirations. Uh, and one may have a lot, of, a lot of emotion in an affection or an attraction to another person, and there may be actually very little loving-kindness, not a whole lot of aspiration, just a lot of emotion. And likewise, there may be enormous sadness about somebody else's situation. But if it doesn't really connect with an aspiration, then it's just a lot of sadness. And so, once again, there's no direct correlation between the amount of emotion that's arising as one feels a closeness towards another person, which may be mostly dominated by attachment, uh, or with compassion, that what is really central and what matters in the world is aspiration, and not simply what, what we're feeling, what we're having as emotions. Because it's aspiration, which, as Chakra raised this the other day, aspiration and then motivation. Aspiration is right next to motivation. Aspiration, dumba, dumba, is right next to kunlong. And that if, if there's an aspiration that's already there, let's take a silly example, ice cream. Y you want ice cream, you want ice cream, and then lo and behold, you see there's some ice cream. Then that aspiration, oh, I'd love to have some ice cream, then turns into a motivation, oh, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, I want some of that ice cream. I'm going to get some of that ice cream. I'm going to ask, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay, whatever it needs. So the aspiration was there already to turn into a motivation. But if aspiration is not there, the motivation won't happen. Right? But now we move to the third, and that is this empathetic joy. And this is an emotion, especially as it's portrayed in the Pali Canon, in the Theravada interpretation. It is an emotion. It is a taking delight. And taking delight in what? Taking delight in others, joys, their successes, their good fortune, but also their virtues. So it's taking delight in happiness and also the underlying causes of happiness, people's acts of kindness, their wisdom, their generosity, patience, and so forth, the whole array of virtues. And so it's taking delight in that. So we see once again that this quality of heart, this quality of heart that we call empathetic joy, is something that's there already. We don't have to conjure it up out of nothing. We don't have to freshly cultivate it as if we don't have it at all. We do have it. But it tends to be fairly limited. It tends to be constrained for many people, a lot of the time, to I and mine. I and mine. So if I get a raise, if something good happens to me, I get, I get over an illness and I'm enjoying good health again. Or what have you, oh, I'm so happy. And that's it's me. Or if it's my child, or my spouse, or my family, or my best friend, oh, I'm so happy. Oh, just delighted. Oh, you got that fantastic, I'm so happy. Let's go out and party. I I'll pay, you know? Because it's my friend, my friend. As I was meditating on this before coming here, it struck me, especially in American football, I don't know that much about world football, 
American football I know a little bit about. And you'll have these teams that will be actually bought and sold from one city to another. So a whole team will pack up and move. So the Rams used to be in Los Angeles, and now they're in St. Louis, I think. I'm not sure. Someplace in the south. Maybe it's New Orleans. I don't know. No, New Orleans Saints. I think it's St. Louis Rams. So they just bought them. But now the people in, in St. Louis will be thinking, Rams, our team, our team. There could be not even one person on the team was actually from St. Louis. And moreover, they're changing from year to year. They're buying and selling. They're trading. They're getting new recruits. And, so, and then the new coaches will come in. Old coaches will leave. So what remains is just the color of their costume, their outfit, and the name. I'm a Rams fan. And then we see anybody who watches football, look how happy they get. When exactly 50% get really happy and 50% really unhappy, you know, when a, when a, when a, score, is, a score is made, a touchdown or what have you. And this is empathetic joy. They're taking delight in their team. But they're so unhappy when the other team makes a score. Oh, it's awful. So it's all about I and mine, I and mine. And so that's where the barriers are. And of course, it can, it can happen that if somebody else that we really don't like, then experiences real great success, or even displays virtue in the world, then we're quite, quite dissatisfied with that, not at all happy. So that's where the barriers are. So this practice is exactly designed to take like a well, like a wellspring, like an artesian well that's already flowing. We already take to like, how much effort does it take if your child is extremely well in school, or gets maybe a stri is striving to be an act actress, and gets a fantastic role? How much effort to take delight in your child's happiness? And I think that's a self-explanatory. Like, oh, about as much effort as falling forward, you know. So easy. My child, my child. But if somebody else, um, somebody else's child gets the role that your child wanted, not so happy. <laughs> Except for the other, ch other p child's parents, well, they'll, they'll be extremely delighted. So that's where it is, this eye and mind. And breaking that down, breaking that down until it just flows. Again, like an artesian well, just like a Tijan well, you know, water just coming out of the ground. Instead of just flowing here to my football team and my friends and my family and then everybody else indifferent, having it flow out evenly. So there it is, empathetic joy, extending it outwards. What I'd like to do for the meditation this morning would be, as we've done with loving kindness and then we did with compassion, start from the center. It's not entirely traditional, but again, given the, the, the bent of modern mentality of sometimes not even taking delight in one's own joys, feeling I didn't really deserve it, or I know someone who's a very fine scholar, and whenever she writes a paper, she hardly ever takes any satisfaction in it. It's not that good. Other people praise it. No, 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 it's not that good. It's not that good. You know? doesn't matter how, how good it is. Um, no, it could have been better. It's like, I'm not... Blah, blah. It's, I mean... Not even taking delight in one's own successes. You know. So maybe there's a place for that. If one doesn't take delight in one's own successes, one's joys, one's virtues, and so forth, then just like Shantideva says, a bodhicitta, if you don't even dwell upon, reflect upon the benefits of bodhicitta for yourself, how will you ever take delight in it for the benefit of others? So likewise, empathetic joy for ourselves, since we have these little two people inside of ourselves that talk, about, talk to each other, I can't stand you, Alan, you're such a mean guy. Oh, you're such a disappointment, you know. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, I'm uh, sorry, won't do it. I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. No, sorry, won't do it. You know, it's really crazy. But since we're in that mode anyway, then we can start taking delight in our virtues, our successes, and so forth. 
but where I'd like to go starting actually a little one step away and that is I would invite you to go down memory lane in the first part of the meditation and simply reflect upon let your mind dwell upon those those people from earliest memories you have who've really shown you great kindness whether it was your, with sheer affection whether it was sharing their wisdom their knowledge their skill their companionship their friendship whatever it may be but people have shown the directly their virtue their kindness towards you and so but in this spirit of taking delight not wow what a great burden of debt now i have i have to pay them all back you know and that's one way that one may respond to other people's kindnesses oh you took me out to a really nice meal gosh i guess i have to take you out to a really nice meal too i probably should be a little bit better so you know that i that i'm not broke or something but rather than having this notion of, of gratitude be like a debt, I've got to repay it. Okay, you gave me a bottle of wine, I need to give you a bottle of wine, or what have you. Just look back, look back upon it with a sense of gladness, happiness, rejoicing, taking satisfaction under others' kindness. And of course, this comes together with a sense of gratitude, which can also be a very happy state, kind of a, a lively, joyful state of awareness. So we'll start there down memory lane, going to our childhood, as far back as you can remember, of acts of kindness by other people, coming up to the present moment, and then, then we'll extend outwards. So we'll kind of send the tap root down and then extend it outwards um, to just wherever there's joy in the world, wholesome joy, and especially where there's virtue, and taking delight in that, then this field of kind of gladness, this field of rejoicing, of appreciation, Appreciation often arises. Often when I, when I write to friends of mine who I, uh, you know, are doing really wonderful work in the world, Matthew Ricard's one that comes often to mind because he's such a dear man and that does such good work, but I know many other people as well. But often when I'm writing them, I, I just, I will thank them. You know, I would just thank them. Thank, thank you for doing such wonderful work in Nepal or India or what have you. It, it has nothing to do. It's just irrelevant whether there's any direct benefit to me. I'm just so grateful that anybody's doing that kind of work and I know I'm not alone. So kind of a sense of gratitude, which is a, an expression of empathetic joy. So that's kind of the gist of it. Tomorrow we'll move into another mode, but I think should keep us busy for today. Okay? So, and bear in mind, this is an antidote when compassion starts to fall into sadness, into despair, into depression, reflecting upon the kindness of others, the virtues in the world, and joys in the world. It's a very, very good antidote. So please find a comfortable position. may enter into this session from the very beginning with a sense of joy, of gratitude, of satisfaction. That you have this time now, this freedom just to devote yourself to the cultivation of the causes of genuine happiness, 
healing and balancing your mind. And in that spirit of rejoicing in your own opportunities, let your awareness descend into the body, filling the body, and settle your body in its natural state. Happily surrender all control over your breath. Letting the body breathe of its own accord. And as you relax more and more deeply into the flow of the respiration, may have a sense that even the body is not the agent. It's simply a process taking place. Breathing is occurring. The body is being breathed. For a little while, calm the conceptually discursive mind with mindfulness of breathing, relaxing deeply with every out-breath and releasing thoughts again and again, letting your awareness come to ground.
once again, let's move from this passive mode of quiet mindfulness to the more active mode drawing on memory, on imagination, and intelligence. And I invite you now to direct your attention to your early past. And you may bear in mind the quip from psychology, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. As you direct your attention backwards to your early childhood, now very deliberately attend to your earliest memories of the kindness of others shown towards you. It may be your parents. It may be a sibling, another relative or friend. As you attend closely, allow this sense of warmth, of gladness, and of gratitude to arise, quite naturally. And with each out-breath, breathe out this sense of, again, whatever it may be, satisfaction, delight, appreciation, and gratitude, perhaps all rolled into one, with each out-breath. Breathe out this light of appreciation and gratitude. Gradually, like a, like a honeybee, alighting from one flower to the next, staying briefly at each one, let your attention gradually move forward in time through your early childhood, your later childhood. And bring to mind the goodness that other people have brought to your life joys you've experienced, the joys you've shared, and take delight in your good fortune, delight in the virtues and kindness of others. With each outbreath,
through your adolescent years. adulthood, and for those of us who have passed beyond young adulthood, keep, keep the awareness moving forward in time. up to the very recent past where, they get, where we've gathered here for eight weeks. And I think we all appreciate, those of us here at the Mind Center, appreciate how much love, how much intelligence, good taste, kindness has come into this place to create it, to run it, the wonderful staff, all those who support the creation and maintenance of this facility, all designed here so that people exactly like us can do exactly what we are doing right now, cultivating our hearts and minds. take delight in the motivation of every person here in the room. What has brought us here? I suspect in every case a motivation of virtue, a truly good, sincere motivation. Taking delight in each person's practice here. Having met all of you now, it's perfectly clear. You're all very sincere, earnest, dedicated to practice. Authentic motivations, everyone.
let your awareness, your attention expand out beyond our immediate vicinity here. Let your attention rove at will to the joys of others, the successes of others, the virtues of others. Stand closely and breathe out your delight, your rejoicing, and satisfaction, appreciation, and gratitude for all the good that is manifest in this world and all the joy that takes place derived from such good. who are applying themselves to enhancing the good dharmic well-being of others, making sure that others have enough to eat, their clothing and shelter, clean water, education, good health.
spoke of God and takes delight in those who are finding themselves simply pointed in to cultivate and to manifest them causes a genuine happiness within their own lives. Buddhism tells single pointed meditation. those who are devoting themselves to leading others on the path of genuine happiness, cultivating inner causes of fulfillment. Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, and the spiritual Those who are not affiliated with religion still are devoted to helping others discover their own internal resources to find genuine happiness.
imagination with his emotions for life. I should have said that we can't control our emotions. They just happen to us. And we have to deal with them, manage them, cope with them, whatever. But they just happen. Kind of treating emotions as, as if it's like the weather. Oh, it rains sometimes. What can you do? That's so totally not true. At least it doesn't need to be. Insofar as we are unable to direct our attention at will, then it could be true. The attention just rolls around like some rabbit dog, barking and gobbling up and biting and so forth. So we, if we have just no control of our attention, and the attention bumps into something that makes us unhappy, we get unhappy. It goes over something unhappy, we get happy. So in that case, a person whose mind is frankly deranged, then yes, then emotions just happen. Happen. But there's this this whole spectrum of being completely deranged where the mind is just totally chaotic. For such a person, emotion just happens. It's just totally out of control. And then there's the range from a deranged person to an arahant, a bodhisattva, a Buddha. As tremendous as there is to focus at will. And where we find ourselves along that spectrum determines the extent to which we can actually not only focus our attention, but arouse emotions at will. So there was, there was one case of it. Uh, I suspect probably not really strong emotions, but probably something came up in, that, in those 24 minutes. And we did it. We direct the attention to the loving care of others, the kindness of others, the joys of others, joys of, our, of, of ourselves and so forth, recalling happy memories and so forth. And by so doing, by directing the attention, then lo and behold, an emotion comes up. Now we, So we can do that for the positive, tending to virtues, to, to joys and so forth, and we know perfectly well that we can arouse very specific emotions by focusing on negative things. If you really want to get angry, how long does it take you? You know, just think of somebody who really pisses you off. You know, and oh, probably in a matter of seconds, you can start working yourself into a little 
solving and you're solving, you know? And so we know that we can also we can do that with sphere. We can start, I won't give any examples, but we can start reflecting on potentially fearful things, you know? And become a burden. Out of which just sitting there quietly and then say, gosh, I think I'd like to be afraid. Let's start thinking about thinking about with your own. It's, we can arouse fear, we can arouse anger, we can arouse sadness, that's not hard. But if we can do that for these more negative emotions, then why not? Sense of gladness, joy, enthusiasm, and so on. So the extent to which emotions just happen to us is the extent to which attention just wanders randomly. So this is part of the cultivation of mental balance, cultivation of sanity. Not that we're supposed to be in control of our emotions at all times. It's silly. Any more than we want to be in control of our attention at all times. Sometimes it's good just to let it loose, be creative, let it be free-floating, let it roam, and so forth. Very, very good. In which case, emotions will come up as well. And of course, as you know, as you now know, in the practice of settling the mind in this characteristic, you are you are allowing your mind off the leash in the sense of where whatever comes up, you simply present with it, present with it, which means a wide variety, probably the whole spectrum, from it can happen, intense reverence can arise. It has happened. Or intense gratitude may arise, intense compassion may arise, intense fear and paranoia and sadness and anger and so forth can arise. All kinds of things arise as we simply allow the attention off its leash and it goes into whatever comes up, that is within the mental domain, of course, and allow whatever to arise, emotions will come up, and then, in the midst of emotions arising and passing, we discover the possibility of freedom even while emotions are coming and going, and recognizing through our experience that it's not necessary to get caught in the grip of every emotion that comes up. So there we are. So, here's a little introduction to mudita, empathetic joy. So, I'd like to move on now. Uh, in one of the uh, meetings today, uh, I think I can mention it, no reason not to, Rhonda, Rhonda came up with the, the uh, idea that in fact, I think we've implemented in all of the past uh, eight-week retreats, we've only had two here, and that is while I, I think we have something of a pact or an agreement that we do all show up at 9 o'clock and at 4.30 for our group sessions, and we're all doing that, which is fine, but also some of you may really enjoy having a little bit more structure and entirely voluntarily, entirely voluntarily, a bit more structure, and that is some, sometimes be able to meditate here together, whether it's five people, whether it's 15 or 20 people, but to have some times where you can join with other people. And so we've had that in the past, uh, but I'd like this to be totally grassroots, that is, it coming from your side. So I'm totally not in charge of this. This was suggested by somebody else. So what I'd like to suggest is that perhaps tomorrow, if anybody's interested, and if nobody is, that's just fine. But if anybody interested, maybe you could show up here at 10 o'clock, Anybody would like to participate in a group session. It could be one, it could be a half an hour, a 24 minute session, and then whatever, then just disband it 24 minutes. If you wish, I'm just giving possibilities here, you could have two back to back, you know, so basically 45 minutes to an hour. If uh, Nicole, Heidi's not here now, she's with her sons, apparently there's vacation in the school for this week, uh, but Heidi and, and Nicola, Nicola have both kindly offered to make themselves available and I think you'll let you know probably with a notice on the bulletin boards, all of you there. Uh, these are two um, relatively seasoned meditators, and I think they'll both, whatever advice they give you, I have a lot of confidence it will be good advice. If you just like to speak to a spiritual friend, 
we've been through an ABCD at least already. I might be able to help. I'll be able to, to find you and I can revise it and give you the device by the technique called pure Thompson. Uh, so they'll be available. But for the group sessions, if you'd like to pursue this, uh, perhaps Heidi or Nicola might lead that, but not necessarily. It could be anybody who just comes up and chimes. You know? So you might wish to lead this is one possibility, maybe at, um, I think maybe 10.30 or and in, in the morning, if you wish, maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon, if you wish. So that would just be kind of gets things started. If nothing starts, I don't care, right? But if you would like to do that, then you can work it out yourselves, again, whether it's a half an hour, an hour, what have you. But as I've said, some people have found that quite helpful, and I think it's great if that's something you'd like to do, okay? So there were a, couple, a few questions here that were so practical, and I think relevant to everybody, that I'd like to address a couple of these first, and then we'll open it to the floor. There were some very practical ones related to meditation. Uh, so, I think, actually, all three of these, I wonder if they're all by the same person. That might be interesting. The uh, handwriting is suspiciously similar. So last week, so here's the first one. Last week we gave an example of a man in a plane who was so concentrated in reading that he did not hear any surrounding noise, a baby crying and so forth. I think we're all aware that this happens. Do we target the same kind of attention in which we do not hear, for example, the sounds around us, for example, a bird singing outside, or do we hear and realize we hear it, but just do not uh, react in any way? Yeah, it depends on the practice. Now, if you're doing Vipassana practice, then you might, may want to keep a more spacious awareness, especially and uh, the practice of Dharma Satipatthana, or Dhamma Satipatthana, and that is the close application of mindfulness to phenomena. So that can be quite wide open, very discerningly, and it's attending specifically or especially to the causal interactions, the pratiti samuttara, the dependent origination, of, of noting, for example, the bird song, and then noting an image of a bird arising in your mind, and then perhaps a little ple pleasant feeling or maybe an unpleasant feeling. Maybe it's a crow and you don't like crows, whatever, but just noticing how this, the outer, the inner, are, are arising in mutual interdependence, right? But, for sh but that's Vipassana practice. For this practice, and now I'll answer the question, for this practice, sounds are bound, are bound to come up, and you're bound, since you're not at stage eight or nine, along nine stages leading to shamatha, since you're not presumably that far along the path yet, you will hear sounds. You will hear, you will experience tactile sensations. They will come up. Just don't deliberately, deliberately give any attention to them. Don't deliberately note, oh, that was a, that was a bird, but I'm going to let it alone. That's like, like saying, please be entirely silent. And you say, okay, I'll be entirely silent. How long would you like me to be silent? <laughs> Starting now or exactly when? But when would you like me to be silent, exactly? Tell me. I, I'm really very interested in being silent, and I'd like to know as much about it as you'd like to tell me. It's kind of missing the point. And so no commentary. A sound comes up, whatever, not interested. So very much like the person who is just very attentively focusing on the novel, and then gradually in kind of waves, you'll find the whole sensory field just kind of fade out. And that's exactly the point. Bear in mind, all of these practices of shamatha are designed to enable your coarse mind, very much embedded in the five physical senses, as well as the mind, to withdraw, dissolve into the mental, your conceptual mind to dissolve into the substrate consciousness. So insofar as you're still sending out tentacles of interest to the sensory fields, then you're just delaying that process. You're getting caught up in distraction. So yes, it, this is samadhi. It is single-pointed. 
and it is focused as entirely as you can simply on attending to the object of your meditation, whether it's the tactile sensations of the breath or whatever it may be. So, mindfulness of breathing. I'm attending to my breath and have a feeling I don't lose it. While on the breath, however, I sometimes realize I'm planning something at the same time, yet not having lost, yet not having lost the breath. How to know which one is foreground, which is background, my attention on breath or on the thoughts that I'm having. So what you're dealing with here is medium and, medium and or subtle excitation. So you recall, if you go back and review the notes, uh, they're on the notes on the, on the website, and then of course it's really unpacked in the book Attention Revolution, or Re Revolution. And that is when coarse excitation comes, you completely forget about your breath. You're just totally thinking about something else. You're sitting there looking at your meditation, and you're not. You're just having a wandering mind. But now, when you have the sense of a continuity, that I'm in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, but then there's also some kind of a dialogue going on, so a monologue or what have you, then this is just a matter of nomenclature, really. But then you can ask of yourself, number one, what do you do with it when you see it? Don't cogitate about it. It's not time to classify it, think about it, and so forth and so on. When you see an inner, inner commentary that's going on, what do you do? Release it. Just not now. Not now. Unless it happens to be a commentary that's really helping you in the practice. That can happen in the early phases. But otherwise, if it's just kind of planning, planning where you're going to go for a walk this afternoon, as soon as you see it up and see it coming up, just release it. And as whole-mindedly as you can, just come back single-pointedly, which means total composure, unification. Samadhi means a unification a single-mindedness, just be present, as if it's a full-time job. It's just a full-time job. There's no time for breaks, no coffee breaks, no chit-chat breaks. I'm sorry, I'm busy all the time. I always have something to do, and that is attend to the whole course of the in-breath, the whole course of the out-breath. So whatever comes up, just release it. Now, of course, it doesn't always work that way. So if, while your, your attention is primarily focused on the breath, but you'll notice that there's some kind of static, some outside mental noise coming up, right? But you're primarily focused on the breath. We'll call that subtle excitation. On the other hand, you can be primarily focused on the internal commentary, the, you know, the chit-chat, chit-chat, and kind of keeping an eye on the breath. Kind of like, you're not that interested, so I'll just give you a little bit of, a, a little bit of attention. In, out, in, out, gotcha. Okay, in the meantime, I'm busy. And you're really thinking about something else. Then we call that medium excitation. Right? And course excitation is you're completely gone. Okay? Now it's very different, of course, when you're practicing settling the mind in this kind of stuff. Because there, you're entire, entirely focused on that domain of the mind, and whatever comes up is exactly the object of meditation. So thoughts coming up, images, memories, and emotions, and so forth, that are coming up, this is not at all a distraction. That's what you're there for. Okay? So then you simply attend to it. And the just excitation occurs when you're carried away. Either you're carried away by the bird song, by the pain in the knee, by something in another sensory field, or you get caught up in the referent of the thought, and you're really thinking about something else, and you're no longer attending to the thought that's arising here and now in the present moment. Okay? So that's that. Then, now we come to settling the mind in its natural state.
is it is it okay to generate men mental images almost throughout the session just to get used to them emerging and dissolving? I tried this and found it helpful, letting uh, getting getting into practice. However, after the session, I felt I had been very active all the time. And any remarks on the on the on this approach? Yeah, this one can easily overdo it. Bear in mind when you are deliberately generating a thought or an image, you're not settling the mind in its natural state. You're doing something to help you get your correct orientation, right? Help help you find the object. But if you keep on doing it, you keep on practicing not settling the mind in its natural state. There's a whole theme of the settling the mind is let it be, let it be, not keep on constructing, keep on constructing. Of course you feel exhausted at the end. You're just thinking about it a lot, right? So do that only insofar as it's helpful, as much as you can, just be present with it, whatever is spontaneously arising. And I would suggest if you, on occasion, just start feeling diffuse, a bit spaced out, unfocused, like, what? A, where is the space of the mind? What? Like, what? Like, disoriented. Then give yourself a target. It's a little bit like having, uh, like being a uh, having a firework, fireworks, shoot up into the sky. So if you're, you're looking at the sky and you say, "I'm not sure I'm looking at the sky anymore," well then, okay, then throw up a firework. Okay, there we go, got it. And back in the sky again. Let it let it fade out. But as much as you as much as you can, or as quickly as you can, mature beyond, develop beyond the need to keep on doing that. Okay, because you can actually retard the practice continuing to generate, 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 when the whole idea here is don't generate, okay? So do it as much as helpful, but don't overdo it, because then it's just generating a lot of thoughts. And I imagine as if there is a line of coming thoughts, mental images, on my left hand, this is getting too complicated, on my left hand side, and I'm in the middle having to recognize all the mental events that pass, I cannot start a conversation with any of them, being carried away by a thought, since my responsibility is that they pass fluently by being carried away by any would also block new mental images if visualizing it rightly is okay. No, keep it simple. This is getting too complicated. Uh, it's getting too busy. Keep this practice really simple. It's really sweet and simple. And that is whatever arises in the space of the mind, attend to it without distraction, without grasping. Don't make it complicated. Start thinking they're on my left, and I'm and this on the right, and I'm in the center, and I have this responsibility. Getting way too cluttered. So we generally have cluttered minds, and it's easy to bring the, the baggage from the outside into this practice, in which case then we just have more cluttered mind once we're meditating. So keep it really simple. Keep it really simple, just as much as you can. Just come back to the present moment, whatever's arising, be present with it. Note its nature. Keep it simple. Final one from this person, I think the same person. When mental images emerge in the space of the mind, should I observe them as what they are? For example, the sun, warmth, getting too complicated again, so I'm going to finish. Make it simple, keep it simple. Don't label. Sun, warmth, no, that's another practice. That was a, a baby step into Vipassana. And some people stay with baby steps for indefinitely. Uh, I think it's something maybe Mahasi Sayadaw himself uh, thought up to help people with in immensely scattered minds of when a sound comes up, sound. A feeling comes up, feeling. Tactile sensation, tactile sensation. When you're at a very primitive level of practice and your mind is otherwise just sprayed all over the place, this can help to slow it down. It's like, it's like speed bumps. It's like speed bumps, right? It gets you to slow down. Okay, just like that out, out on the road. You know, slow down, yellow light, flickering light. Okay, sound. 
But that's not Vipassana. If that's Vipassana, then bird watching is Vipassana. Yellow warbler, robin, crow, blue jay, crane. That's not Vipassana, it's just labeling. There's no, there's no insight in that at all. It's just labeling. Well, we already know how to label. So that can be a very, very basic, basic, basic method to just get the, the, the conceptual mind to calm down a little bit. But it's pre-shamatha and it's pre-vipassana. I mean, something doesn't become vipassana just by calling it vipassana. There's no basis for that, calling that vipassana anywhere in the whole Buddhist literature for the first 2,500 years. So call it what you will, but it's not vipassana. And so likewise here in shamatha, especially settling the mind, it just clutters. It just clutters. This is the whole idea. Someone, I, I spoke with someone one-on-one -on -one today. The quality of awareness when you're settling the mind in its natural state. A nice image. I'll give you two. One I think is familiar. The old man or woman watching other people's children play. So you don't even know the children. You don't know that's Johnny and that's Mary and that's Susie. You don't know them at all. You're just, you're just enjoying watching the children play. And there's no notion that I'm, I may have to get up and scold this child or comfort this child. Or, their parents are there, right? So the old man or woman is just watching and watching, just enjoying watching the children play. But non-discursively, not classifying, that's a cute kid, that one's chubby, that one seems unhappy. That just clutters things up. So there's one ambience of an old person watching other people's children play, attending closely, enjoying, but totally non-reacting, non-classifying, non-labeling, just being very attentive. And another one to capture more the, the quality of this awareness is like a, a young child, like a pre-verbal child, being brought by its parents into one of these marvelous Tibetan temples with tankas and statues and brilliant colors and brocade and satin and all kinds. I mean, it's a you know, fantastic array of colors and images in a lot of traditional Tibetan monasteries. And so if, you are a, uh, you know, if you're an art historian or you know a lot, of Buddhist, a lot about Buddhist iconography, then you'll come in and say, ah, oh, very, very good one of Yamantaka. I think that's 17th century. Ah, there's one from southern Tibet. I think it's 19th century. Not great art, but it's a good image. You know, and, and be classifying and judging and judging and judging all very well. But what would a one-and-a-half-year-old do? coming into this fantastic display of images. And, and a one-and-a-half-year-old is not unintelligent, just doesn't have a lot of verbal skills yet, let alone for this, and will just come in. I'm imagining being a one-and-a-half-year-old, but just... But this is an image from Tsongkhapa, like a young child coming into a temple and looking at the murals, and that it could be with a lot of interest, but it's just attentive, totally engaged, interested, but not talking. So when you're settling the mind in this natural state, do that. And let a, another level of knowing emerge. This is something that, again, we're not taught in school. We don't learn it in business. We don't learn it anywhere in the modern world except for a place like this. And that is to allow to emerge another whole level of knowing. Because we're so much caught up in the Aristotelian trip, which is dominating pretty much all of science, is you know only conceptually, and the discovery is made only when it's public, and it's true only if you can validly narrate it to somebody else. So it's all the discovery and the knowledge is all embedded in, like your feet sunk in concrete, in a conceptual mind and in verbalization and articulation. And that's where all of our knowledge is embedded. Yeah, if you're Aristotle, but not if you're Milarepa, not if you're Buddha. And so this, I mentioned this earlier, but in the, in the Buddhist context, very, very much unlike the Aristotelian, and that of modern philosophy, which is all about talking, 
talking and thinking and talking and thinking and then more talking and thinking and more books and thinking and talking about more books. It's all conceptual. And it's, that's the culmination. You've really made it when you're you know, full professor, endowed chair, and you've published a whole bunch of books as a, as a philosopher. And that's it. That's as good as it gets. Right? And that's for scientists too. It's all your publications and how many times other people are citing you in their footnotes. Woohoo! You know? And in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, and this is true for all schools, there is definitely a role for intelligence, for memory, for analysis, for reasoning, and for philosophy and conceptualization. And what's it all for? To go beyond the conceptual mind and gain direct, conceptually unmediated realization of some of the core features of reality, specifically those core features that liberate. But the liberation happens when you go beyond conceptualization. So here we are, moving towards shamatha, to know through your own immediate experience the bliss, the luminosity, and non-conceptuality of your own substrate consciousness. That's a discovery. But while you're making it, you're not talking about it. And when you do come out of it, if you've just come out of having realized, you know, your mind having dissolved, settled into your substrate consciousness, you've, just like a, like a, like a warm bath, you've just drenched yourself in it, soaked yourself in it for hours, just luxuriating in the bliss, the luminosity, non-conceptuality, so you know exactly what are the reference of those terms when they pertain to the substrate consciousness. This is the bliss of the substrate consciousness, and so forth. Well, that's the discovery. And it's non-conceptual. It's immediate knowing, and you have discovered it. You have discovered a dimension of consciousness. And you're discovering it right there while you're having it, non-conceptually. Then you come out. Then you come out. And you tell somebody... If they've never meditated, I've just made a discovery. And that is there's a dimension of consciousness that is blissful, luminous, and non-conceptuality. And when you say bliss, they'll think of sex. When you say luminosity, they'll think of the sun. When they say non-conceptual, they'll think, you mean you're fast asleep? You will know the reference of those terms from your own experience, and they won't have a clue, because they have not tapped into it. That's why so often in the Buddhist tradition, all of the teachings, whether it's Prajampanamita, Perfection of Wisdom, Dzogchen, whatever it may be, all fingers pointing to the moon. And the moon is non-conceptual. It's the immediate experience, and that's what liberates the mind. And the conceptualization is to help us get there. So there we go. All right. Uh, just one more. I, I had to chuckle when I, when I read this one. Lama Yeshe passed away years ago, but a lovely... I knew him back in the 1970s, 80s. Lovely Lama, really very incredibly sweet Lama. He says, so he's being cited here as an authority, with good reason. He says that after death, reincarnation takes place in a few minutes up to seven weeks. What say you? What's my opinion? <laughs> that really makes me chuckle. Lama Yeshe is citing classic Buddhist tradition based upon centuries and centuries of experience. So he's not coming up with Lama Yeshe's idea. He's, he's articulating the view that is pretty much universally accepted in Tibetan Buddhism, up to seven weeks. It's, you can cite him if you like, but he's, he's representing a whole tradition here that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, right? And so if you're asking, what's my opinion, as if I'm representing another tradition that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, or I have my own unique insights, no, it's actually seven and a half weeks if you're in the southern equator, or on the southern hemisphere, you know? Or I wondered, you know, if you were on another planet, because seven weeks is what? Seven days. So if you're on another planet that, ha that revolved more quickly than seven days, if like you were living on, on Venus or Mars, 
they don't rotate at the same day. So a, a Mars day would be, I think, what, longer or shorter, I'm assuming. Mercury day, definitely shorter. Jupiter, long days. So maybe if you want to have a really long bardo, you should be born on Jupiter. <laughs> you know, if it's really absolutely, somehow objectively, inherently, ultimately real, that seven weeks is the magic, you know, the magic number. So I listened. I don't have any opinion at all. I listened to those who are much wiser than I, but also, very importantly, are representing centuries and centuries of experience in this regard. And there's some, some question raised whether, about how literally this seven-week business should be taken. Whether it's a ballpark, is there any metaphor involved, is it any poetry, is it allegorical in any way, or did they mean absolutely on this planet it's seven days, you know? Or seven weeks, seven times seven days. And so there's been s some discussion. Overall, it's taken fairly literally, that it may be uh, a matter of moments. I mean, it does uh, take place, and I'm speaking now with a lot of confidence from a whole tradition behind me, and not because I got some bright, you know, bright new idea. But it does, it, it does happen on occasion that a person may achieve enlightenment right at the point of the clear light of death, or very shortly thereafter. There's something called the bardo of the dhammata, of ultimate reality. Some people achieve enlightenment there. Some people may achieve enlightenment in the bardo of becoming, which generally takes seven weeks. Some people may bail out and achieve enlightenment during that time. For some people, it may not take seven weeks. As noted here, it may be much shorter. I've heard it said, it's quite, quite commonly accepted, that within a, if, if you're there for up to seven weeks, every week or so, you die in the bardo. You die in the bardo and you, you reemerge in, in the bardo. So kind of like closure and, like, and then another emergence, a closure, another emergence, as if you're fading out of one dream and then coming into another dream. And interestingly enough, in a, a, a night's sleep for a common person, ordinary person, five to seven dream cycles, which means in a night you may be dying up to six or seven times, six times, let's say, if it's seven dreams, dying from one dream, being reborn maybe 90 minutes later into another dream and in, in and out, in and out. So the short answer is, on the whole, uh, the Tibetan tradition of all schools, there's, I don't think there's any significant sectarianism here or difference of, of views from one school to the next, say pretty much it's about seven weeks. Um, during that time, it could be one week, two, three, whatever, anywhere along that spectrum. Overall, the view is that by seven weeks, that your karma for being in the bardo will have run out and some other karma for re-embodying someplace will have kicked in and you'll be drawn out of it. There will be something that attracts you. Wherever you may be born, there's going to be something that attracts you, it'll lure you, and there will be an aspiration uh, to be re-embodied, kind of a craving to be re-embodied. Now, having said that, I'll end on this note, uh, and I'm speaking now just Buddhist worldview. So here it is, I'm telling you about Buddhist worldview. It can certainly happen that a person might be in the bardo, and let's imagine the person is very attached to a place. Let's imagine, if you can imagine, being really attached to this place. Stretch your imagination. To being really attached to the, the mind center. It's like, this is where I always wanted to be. I never want to leave. I never want to leave. And you go home and you die. And then your great attachment to the mind center kicks in. And you click through seven weeks of the bardo. And then your attachment kicks in. And you're just coming back, back to the mind center. Back to the mind center. And you think birth is a preta as a spirit, a ghost, haunting the mind center, <laughs> right? Just a wraith wandering around, wandering around. This is mine. 
this mindset of, I'm the head, the alpha ghost. You know, that could happen. Then you might stay here for who knows how long, decades, years, decades. Sometimes, you know, pretas can have a long life, life, lifespan. They can haunt a house, they can haunt a region for a long, long time. So exactly when would you know that the bardo ended and now you're a preta? Because being in the bardo is rather ghost-like, and now you're a preta, that's a ghost. So they're not the same, but it would be not, not a very big transition, perhaps. So that's possible, too, that sometimes people will come back as pretas and haunt a certain area. That happens, too. Okay, enough of that. So just the short answer to all those questions about settling the mind, keep it simple. That's really the most important point. So anything coming up from your side now? Theory or practice, we'll start with Roger, and we can get the floating mic. There we are, good. It's not on, I don't think. It's not working. Is it on? Nope. One, two, one, two. It's It's on. on. Yep. I wanted to comment on the dry eye thing the other day because I have dry eyes. And yeah. I, one of the things I do is I take a, got this from my uh, uh, doctor. You take a, a wet cloth, hot wet cloth, and you put it on your eyes mm-hmm. and you kind of press it in where the tear ducts are mm-hmm. and it expands the tear duct. And that's really helpful. Oh, good. And I just talked with Sonia and she said that they would order uh, or individually order eye drops for anybody who oh, needed nice. them. Very I nice. do have uh, eye drops, but if they need them, they would uh, do that. Wonderful. So. Our, our staff is as, as lovingly supportive as always. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Very good. Okay. Yeah, that's it, I think. Good, Thanks. good. That's very helpful, very practical. Yeah. Yep, we like to avoid dry eyes. Anything else coming up? Yes, Doctor. Wherever you under. Thank you, Lizzie. Check door. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when we're doing single pointed meditation, for example, on the, um, how do you say, Eric, what? On, yeah, uh, uh, contact. Contact. And yeah. Mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. So the, the, the tactile sensation of breath. Yeah, yes. tactile sen- sensation. Yes. For example, when we're eating. Can mm-hmm. we, uh, when we're eating. Eating, yeah. Yeah. We're doing such type of meditation. Can we lost our taste? Can you lose your taste? Yeah. If you're focusing single-pointedly on the breath at the apertures of the nostrils... Not, and not, not on the breath, but what is happening on my mouth, for example. Yeah. Um, but not on the test, but on tactile sensation. Yeah. And so your question is, if you're focusing single-pointedly on the tactile sensations of the food in your mouth, yeah. could you lose taste? Yeah. Yes. You could. That is, the more single-pointed the mind becomes, it becomes like a laser, and then other even adjacent adjacent, nearby, uh, stimuli or appearances can fade out. Again, think of the person who's just totally single-pointedly focusing on his book in an airplane. He doesn't even see around the book. He's just... And of course, he's, ca- he's not just looking at the book as a book. He's totally caught up in the story. So what this... The visual is a catalyst for him to be really thinking of the... You know, getting caught up in the story. So he's mostly in the mental realm. And this book here is to help him keep the story going in the mental realm. But when that happens, again, he may be oblivious or unaware, much of his body and so forth and so on. So in principle, yes, if you're focusing single-pointedly on tactile sensation, taste may slip away. If you're focusing single-pointedly on sound, sight may slip away. If you're focusing single-pointedly on the domain of the mind, 
all of the five physical senses may fade away. It can happen. Yeah. Okay. Yes, please. Yes, Francesca. Francesca, yes. I would like to know if you, you can give me uh, some, um, how could I say, uh, suggestions to how to practice awareness of awareness in the lay position. In the lying down in position. In lying down position. Mm -hmm. Because it is very difficult for me to, uh, to focus my mind on awareness and to do that kind of zooming in that you yeah. said this morning uh -huh. when I'm lying down. Right. <coughs> I can understand that. Yeah, it would be a little bit strange. But again, the, the, the expansion and contraction or the release and the inversion, I think it's important not to think that this is linear, like going out in front of you and then back in, out in front of you, back in, as if there's a pendulum. You know, now I'm going out. Now I'm going in. Not like that. Not like that. Think rather of a sea anemone. So it's a... It's like, a it's like a, an animal flower in the ocean. A sea anemone, it looks like a little flower in the ocean, and it, it opens up like that. And then if you put your finger in the middle of it, it goes, and it retracts into the center, right? Or like a balloon that expands, and then it just contracts. You let it air out, and it, and it contracts. It's more three-dimensional than just two-dimensional out and in in front of you. But it's three-dimensional in the sense of just like a flower opening, your wind is just coming out. And that's it. Out. Out into an expanse, out into non-objectness. Non-objectivity. That is, it's not out to space. For example, right now, as I attend in your direction, I'm now going to, and I'm doing it right now, I'm coming in your direction, but I'm focusing on the space between us. So you probably can tell my eyes are not focusing on you. Even if, uh, if the eyes are there, I'm not focusing on you. I'm focusing on, I'm focusing on space. That's the object. That's not what we're doing here. Right? It's not focusing on space. It's releasing into space with no object. In other words, your awareness is coming out, but with no target. The target is the sign. And this is shamatha without a sign. So as you're sending your awareness out, it doesn't bump into something. As even there, I bumped into the space between us, barnang, barnang, the intervening space. That can be my object. I'm looking at space. Oh, interesting. Like that, right? That's my target. Or I can focus on your face. Then I see the colors of your face, the shape of the face. That's the target. When you're releasing your awareness, it's out into expansiveness, into openness, out into space, but with no target. Your attention doesn't bump into anything, doesn't latch onto anything. So it's just a release. And then when you come in, don't think I'm coming into my head. Don't think I'm coming into my heart. Just, it is simply a withdrawal from all appearances, including the appearances of the mind. A disengagement, a loss of interest. And it's simply allowing, it's, and it comes by release in a way, even though there's kind of an arousal and focus, it's also just letting awareness come to rest in its own place. In a way, it takes some exertion to focus outwards. So, oh, there's Francesca. And then, whoa, then out comes the arrow of my attention. It takes a bit of exertion, right? But now, I'll just rest. Almost like a rubber band. I stretch it out to attend with you, and then I release. 
and the rubber band just re comes right, right back, stretches to its natural shape. So then I just come, having extended out into, into space, now just away from all appearances. So what, one's coming out beyond all appearances and in a way inward, withdrawn from all appearances. So in a way, it really shouldn't matter whether you're lying down or sitting up. Because it's, it's not trying to go up or out. It's just going out-out, 360 degrees, three-dimensional, just. But even that is a visualization. We're not visualizing anything yet. It is just a release. So with settling the mind, perhaps I was getting a bit impatient. Hey, don't make it complicated. Don't make it complicated. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. This is more simple. Awareness of awareness is more simple. And that is, it's just coming to rest in something you already know. That is, you don't have to think. If I should ask you, I'm going to give you a tough question now, or a question. See if you can figure out the right answer. You ready for the question? Are you aware or not? You don't even have to think about that one. Because if you heard me, you already know, right? That's what you knew before you knew anything else, right? When you first wake up in the morning, you might check this when you wake up. When you first wake up in the morning, the first thing you may be aware of is that you're awake. And then you open your eyes, and you feel your body, and you feel this, this, this. But the first thing is, oh. And if you gave it a label, it might be, here I am. But prior to here I am is already awareness. Already awareness, right? So there it is. Having said that, there is this phase, and Padmasambhava in our text will repeat this a number of times, where this release and contraction, release and contraction, it's a kind of a, a theme or an overall method that's quite common in the Dzogchen tradition, and I think it's very skillful. I, I, I'm really quite a strong advocate of it. Very, very useful. Uh, the release tends to dispel excitation. All the energy, all the turbulence behind the, the scattered, turbulent, excited mind, just gone. Right? So the release releases the energy behind excitation. But then you, you draw it together. This unification, this coming together, this single-pointedness, which is samadhi, you draw it in and in that focusing, that arousal, that concentration, you overcome laxity. Become laxity. Okay? So that's the power of the release and the release and contraction, release and contraction. That in each cycle of that, whether you conjoin it with the breath or simply do it at your own pace, you're you're remedying both excitation as you release outwards and laxity as you really focus and arouse and, and concentrate your attention in upon itself. Very skillful means. Having said that, at some point, if you're doing this with multiple sessions, you know, on your own, then what I'd strongly suggest is um, a little bit like riding a bicycle on flat ground, on flat ground. And that is, and if you're not a racer, if you're a racer, I think you pedal all the time, pretty much. But if you're on flat ground and you're just enjoying an afternoon biking around, then you may pedal for a while, and then on occasion, when you kind of get your speed up, then just coast. You know, even if you're, n you're not going downhill, you just coast for a while. If you have a good bike, you coast for quite a while. 
Okay, and then you get a bit too slow, then okay, start pumping again and pedaling, pedaling, and then sometimes just coast, coast. And so in a, in a similar way, in this practice, sometimes then outwards, inwards, outward, inwards, you know, pedal. And then sometimes when the momentum's up, that is the, there is some real composure there, there's some real presence of mind there, and the clarity is there, and when you come into awareness of awareness, you know it, right? Then coast. And what that coasting means is don't coast when your awareness is out, don't coast when your awareness is in, coast when your awareness is neither out nor in, but just resting right where it is with no sense of inversion or release, just, and let's do it right now without moving your body at all, just for a few seconds. Just let your awareness rest right where it is. It's really simple. It's really simple. You didn't need to go out to do that. You didn't come in to do that but just in a finger snap, and let's do it once again, just in a finger snap, just rest and be aware of being aware and let your awareness rest right where it already was. Do it again, just for seconds. That's how simple this practice is. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's really simple. And by simple, it's like, taking a, it's like taking a burning coal and putting it on a mound of snow. Putting it right on the top, right? And just dropping it there. But it's a red-hot coal when you start. And what's going to happen? It's going to settle in its natural state. It's going to burn, obviously, it's going to burn right through the snow and come down until either it's, it's as cold as the snow is or it's burned its all the way, all the way down to the ground and then there's nothing more to burn. And then it's dirt, and it can't really burn that much. And so in a similar way, just let your awareness come to rest in its own place, and like a hot coal, burn its way right down through the coarse mind. And then it's as if, it's like a black hole. It's as if, it, as you're really going deeply into this, stage six, seven, eight, nine, especially seven, eight, nine, in this practice, it's like... Like all the appearances are sucked in after it. I, I'm seeing an image of, I think, I think it may be, it's something from astronomy, it's cosmology, uh, of just everything being sucked into. I think it's kind of like a black hole, but just imagine like a vortex, like a vortex. As you're just resting there in this utter simplicity of single-pointed attention in being aware of awareness, then it just kind of sucks in all the awareness that would otherwise flow out and illuminate the visual field, the auditory, and so forth. So all it's rather a good, good analogy, I think. The light of the mind, that is the gravitational pull of your samadhi, is so strong that the light of your mind, the luminosity of your own awareness, is actually sucked in from the five physical senses. It's sucked in from thoughts, images, even the space of the mind. It's sucked in from all of the six sense fields, the datus, and it's sucked in right to itself. And so all that it's aware of when you have settled your mind in its natural state by way of this practice is you're aware single-pointedly of one thing. And that is your substrate consciousness knowing itself. And that's not a bad place to be. Okay? 
So there is a time then to stop pedaling, to stop the oscillation. And then if you're sitting there and you find you're getting spaced out, one of two things, and that is you're just resting there. And then after a while you notice, I'm just sitting here with a blank mind. I'm just kind of like, oh. In other words, I'm on the path of vegetation. You know, I'm, I'm on a, to achieve carrothood, you know, like that. As soon as you recognize you're just sitting there spacing out or just sitting there blank mind, then you can either sharpen up immediately and say, hey, this entails knowing. So once again, hey, know. Sustain the knowing of awareness, the awareness of awareness, then it's fine. But if you find it's nebulous, it's but then start the oscillation again. Or if you're seeking to just rest there in awareness of awareness, and you're just getting abducted by one thought after another, then you might want to start the, aware, the, the oscillation again. Okay? So over the long term, just resting in the awareness of awareness is going to be the place to go. Go ahead. So not remain in stillness or yes? When you are ready to do that, yes. Okay. There's a, this I'm giving, I'm transmitting here, uh, what, what I received from my teacher, Gyatso Rinpoche, they're the, the clearest and most precise, detailed instructions on this practice that I've seen. And it's from natural liberation, and I received this transmission and the permission to teach from Gyatso Rinpoche. On the other hand, I was first introduced to this practice in the Galupa tradition. Tsongkhaba teaches it very briefly. And you want to know his whole instruction? Tsongkhaba, one of the great, great meditation masters, scholars, contemplatives of all of Tibet, he said, oh, you want to practice awareness of awareness? Good. Rest in the sheer luminosity and the sheer cognizance of awareness. Next, would you like to know about another kind of practice? That's it. That's all he said. And that was enough. That was enough. It's like the Heart Sutra. If you, if you, under, if you really fathom the Heart Sutra, you don't need to look at the, heart, the, at the Prajnaparamita in 8,000 and 20,000 and 100,000 shalokas. The Heart Sutra captures it all, if you can get it. So Tsongkhapa gave the Heart Sutra on awareness of awareness. And that is just rest, knowing the sheer luminosity and the sheer cognizance of awareness. Stay there and shut up. And don't ask any questions. Just stay there. Seltsam karasa. Seltsam riksam. Seltsam riksam amik. Just that. And don't move. But do maintain, the, let your, the luminosity illuminate and let the cognizance cognize. Right? He kept it that simple. So you can always come back there. But for those who say, oh, I don't think I can do that. That's too difficult. I don't know how to do that. That's, I'm, that's hard. I'm, that's hard. Oh, then Padmasambhava says, okay, now we have all of these steps you can go through to get to the same place. Because you can imagine when you're, when you're very far along this path, you're not going to keep on going out, in, out, in. That's an exercise to overcome laxity and excitation. Right? But when you can just rest in the center without laxity or excitation, that's very helpful. And bearing in mind, once again, and I'll say this, and I think there's one more question, and that is, this, this practice is extraordinary in the sense that it is so direct. I often think of the Autobahn in Germany. And if you're in the left-hand lane on the Autobahn, don't even go there unless you're in a really good car. Don't bring your little VW bug over into the fast lane. Because you'll be putzing along at 80 miles an hour, and there's a Maserati behind you that's going 150. You know? And you just shouldn't be there. So if you're, in the, if you're in the fast lane on the Autobahn where there's no speed limits, then that is a very direct route. And other cars just get out of the way. 
Porsches, yes. High-end high Mercedes, yes. High-end Audi, yes. And Ferrari and Lamborghini and so forth, yes. All the other ones, keep to the side. This is a direct route. This is, this is the fast lane on the Autobahn to Shamata. I mean, it's just direct. There's no, there's no stoplights. There's no complexity. It's just poof, hot cold through snow to just dissolve right through and to discover the stillness that is already there in the nature of your substrate consciousness. It's still, it's non-conceptual. That's still. You're there just to realize the stillness that is already there and the very nature of the substrate consciousness is that it is luminous, selva. And so you're just going to, 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 re to recognize the vividness, because it's the same word, vividness, luminosity, clarity. It's all the same word, selva, in Tibetan. You're there to discover the luminosity that's already there, to discover the stillness that is already there. So you don't have to cultivate either one. Just release everything that's obscuring the stillness and luminosity of your own awareness. So it's a very... It's not necessarily faster for everyone. So other people will find mindfulness of breathing is more effective. And they'll do better on that one. Other people settling the mind. They'll do better. It'll be faster for them. But if you're looking for something that is simple and straight, unelaborated, and absolutely direct, where the end point is very similar to the path, that this is the practice. This is the practice. From the very beginning, you are emulating the substrate consciousness. The quality of awareness you bring to it. You're emulating the quality of the substrate. And that is, it's, you can't make yourself blissful immediately, but you just rest in the natural luminosity and the natural stillness of awareness until your whole, all the senses and your mind, your mind, your coarse mind, just <laughs> does a disappearing act. Okay? And the rabbit of your mind gets sucked into the hat of substrate consciousness. Olaso. If there's a really short question, otherwise we can call a break. All right, a break it is. Enjoy your dinner, and I'll see you tomorrow morning.